I'm talking to myself. How are you? Yeah. Yeah, were you muted and talking? It's a good trick. No, I just said hi. So I, I'm not, <laughs> didn't, didn't sit there talking for a minute. I, I think you said then, hi in that exact moment when I was going from speaker to host when you can't hear anything. How's, um, ah, did I tell you how much your, how cool your wife is? Uh, no, but I'm always open to that conversation. What's her handle again? Emmy Melker, E M I M E L K E R. Cool. Just sent her an invite for no reason. I'll probably do that a lot now. Just <laughs> I think, she's, I think she's playing tennis at the moment, but maybe she'll join. In the, uh, <laughs> cool. She she has a life. I'm glad. How long have you been together for? Uh, we've been together since 2008, so 15 years, and we've been married uh, just over, I guess, 11 years, 11 and a half years. Oh wow! And um, you, you've got kids together, yeah. And we have an eight-year-old and a, and a four-year-old, but I, I'm I'm kind of old, so you know all this sort of happened later for me. Obviously, um, you know I'm 46, so I didn't have kids until I was 38. First respect. Second, 46 is not old, man. No, I just mean you know like most uh, my friends from college and stuff. A lot of them have kids who are graduating college or <laughs> well through that's high school. They, that's because that's because they're weird. That's because they're weird and they follow peer pressure instead of being logical and uh, smart about it. So you, you've made the right decision and they've made the dumb decision. Don't worry. Yeah, I think it's different strokes for different folks. But for me, I, I had a lot of things to get out of my system before uh, I had any business getting married or having kids. Yeah, man. Um, well, it was nice to meet you in Dubai. I think I said that already. Appreciate yeah, it. Was that was great. That was, we, that was yeah. a good time. Like, yeah, really yeah. good time. I, we, I enjoyed we, we, we had a pretty wild time. You, having my legs frozen while my was face sick. was in the sauna. It was great. It was, it was sick. So we should do it again. Uh, but let's kick off the show, man. Um, so we've got a pretty cool panel today. And, you know, it's not like one big topic that we're going to be covering. It's a lot of small topics. I think for me, the more interesting one is the – it's not that interesting, but the JP Morgan um, – uh, report on Ethereum on the activity since the Shanghai upgrade. It's not the best report, but I think it's a dumb report. Um, I was got just going to say it's so, so dumb to me, that report. It yeah, is, it is. Like, they just focus it's on like, things yeah, that... It's also a bear market, buddy. Like, what did you expect <laughs> yeah. to happen? Did you expect <laughs> Ethereum to go to $10,000 after the upgrade just because... Yeah, I was pretty disappointed because like the upgrade had nothing to do with increasing activity. The upgrade is all about uh, reducing costs, and making it more efficient. Um, so their their issue with Ethereum is <laughs> is un, unrelated. I, I think it just shows sort of a fundamental lack of understanding. But hey, it's JP Morgan. I don't know, man. They're not they're not dumb. Um, but uh, then again, they could be, and I could be the the, the naive. Whoever wrote it, smart. maybe a little bit dumb, or or just they just don't quite understand it. I, I don't think it's dumb. I think it's just a bad take. Yeah, like let's uh, since we got Patrick here, we don't have the macro guys here. Like let's just quickly dig into it. So they they do a report where they talk about um, uh, the energy consumption of Ethereum. Um, uh, that despite the energy consumption collapsing by over ninety nine percent, and the supply shrinking by point uh, eighteen percent, and staking going up by more than fifty percent, and they're complaining about the the network activity being disappointing, which is weird considering that. The, the upgrade had nothing to do with network activity. We're, we're in the midst of a bear market. And if you compare to previous bear markets, we're doing significantly better. The previous bear market had no DeFi activity. They had no DeFi TVL, zero L2s, and, and no staking percentage. So, so I'm, I'm reading off a tweet from uh, Yield Collector. He's got a great tweet on this. But it's just a report that I thought would be a, a big part of today's story that we dig into on why JP Morgan is, is just not too happy with Ethereum. Uh, and it got a lot of headlines. But from what I read, it's a, it's just a, a not only a nothing burger, but just a, 
Uh, it's not a good look for JP Morgan. Anything to add there, Scott? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. It's a perfect take. Pat, Patrick, have you have you actually have, we've got Patrick here? Patrick, have you seen the report by uh, JP? Yeah, Morgan? I have. And uh, first thing I'll say is I do think it's good that they're looking at on-chain data, uh, but they make a couple pretty big mistakes. First one you mentioned is that the point of the upgrade wasn't to reduce Ethereum fees or increase throughput or anything like that. Um, the upgrade largely had to do with staking and unstaking. And in that respect, it's been a success because more people are staking. And uh, DeFi TVL, if you include liquid staking, is up in terms of ETH. So they talk about you know the amount of money in DeFi is flat, but in terms of ETH, it's actually up. And so any decrease or flatness is due to price fluctuations. Uh, and the other thing that they they miss, as far as I can tell, is that tons of Ethereum traffic is now moving to layer two rollups, where where a year or two ago, the scaling factor of rollups was about 1x, and now it's 6x. So rollups are processing 600% more transactions than mainnet. So you can't talk about um, you know activity that's being settled on Ethereum without looking at the fact that most of it is on rollups now. Yeah, and, and I agree with your initial point. That at least they are looking at on-chain activity, if that's a, an achievement. Um, let's go into the Mike Novogratz uh, story, um, Scott. By the way, I'm not sure if you saw this on the uh, um, uh, on the on the non-crypto news, but we have a, a politician from uh, just came into the wire. Politician from Russia, no joke, just puts out a statement. He's the head of parliament, I think. I know it's unrelated, but I like to mention on a non-crypto news when it's really big. And I think it's pretty big. He says Ukraine must surrender or cease to exist. I haven't read the story yet. Um, uh, the team is doing a tweet on it, but it's um, kind of took my attention away. But uh, back to That's crypto, crazy. Scott. That's fucking mental. Ukraine should surrender or cease to exist. Like statements like this are just fucking stupid. If you think the JP Morgan report is dumb, look at this political politician statements. <laughs> this Russian guy. Um, but you want to go to the Mike Novogratz story and micro MicroStrategy also buying up some some Bitcoin. I always love a good discussion on uh, on MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor being a giga chat and dollar cost averaging on a level that people can only dream of. I mean, I don't know that it's such a huge story. In the fact that we know it's happening, right? Any time that he can raise or gain access to any capital profits from the company, he's always going to put it into Bitcoin. That's his mandate. That's what he does. I mean, they acquired 5,445 more Bitcoin for $147.3 million at an average price of 27053 I love that people immediately scream, ah, ha, ha, he bought the top again. Uh, but last time I checked, the top was around 31000 and we're still at twenty six, pretty close to that price. So uh, I, I think that that's sort of a, a laughable narrative. But I also think it's important to note that when someone like Michael Saylor does this, I don't think he really cares about the price. He's not like looking at a chart and trying to see if RSI is oversold. He doesn't give a shit. He's dollar cost averaging for the long term to hold Bitcoin, which is what probably most people should be doing. I mean, if we want to talk about Novogratz, obviously we have Novogratz uh, saying, I'm trying to get the exact uh, wording here. Sorry, I'm looking for the news uh, that we should see an ETF approval in October. Um, that's worth discussing. I think it's very, very likely that we're going to get the blended Ethereum Bitcoin futures ETF from Valkyrie at the very beginning of October, we all know that the SEC has very little grounds to deny an Ethereum futures ETF because we already have the Bitcoin futures product, which is a, a fish effectively the same. 
But as to whether we're going to get a Bitcoin spot ETF, that's, I think, a little more more challenging. I mean, anyone on the panel have specific thoughts on what Novogratz is saying here? Travis, I saw you jumped up. Have you been uh, tracking the ETF? Uh, definitely paying attention to the ETF. What, I, I, I must have missed what, uh, what Novogratz said. Is there a link to that somewhere? I'll, I'll give you a link. He basically just said we're going to. He thinks we're going to get an ETF approval in October. Uh, Mario, that's the gist of it, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. He was so casual about it, uh, which caught me. You know, with what he said, he basically was just like, "Yeah, we're going to get good news in October," and like, and then just moved on and started talking about it. So, I don't know if that's a "Hey, I know something," or I'm just a. Stop. Yeah, right. And saying we're going to get good news in October, he wasn't specific. And I, I really think that that's going to be the uh, Ethereum futures ETF. Well, the blended one from Valkyrie and then probably a slew of Ethereum ETF approvals coming after that. And that's my take. Where are you? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I have zero insight into the inner workings of these approval processes, but I was taken back by his confidence in the statement of we're going to get good news in October. From a cycle point of view, I'm I'm very much caught in this fractal from previous cycles where like in the spring we have our you know finale capitulation event of some kind maybe confirmation of recession or whatever it is the rate hikes uh, pivot typically followed by downside in the market so like i think that all coming early the good news coming early and catching everyone up guard would make a lot of sense for so i mean you know me i'm more of a technicals guy but uh it was it was refreshing to see because i'm so so staunchly in the in the camp of like just wait for the spring and the, the january investment window but um things starting up early in october would be very crypto indeed yeah and but like you said if you look at the cycles even you know big news might be a temporary bump because we're just at that point that year before the having and and that situation and we see obviously that we have every attempted sort of dump from this price of Bitcoin is quickly bought up and any sort of pump. And now, by the way, we're talking about $500 moves as pumps and dumps, which is a sad state of the crab market here. Yeah. But um, there's just not that much to look at. And we have Gareth as well. RTL, give me your thoughts, I guess, on that in a cycle. But then I would love the market sort of update and thoughts on, on Bitcoin and everything from Gareth, because obviously we're seeing this sort of continued weak, weakness from stocks as well. Uh, and the dollar absolutely ripping 10 green weeks in a row on the DXY. Yeah, it's really been an amazing move on the U.S. dollar. And today we're seeing it again. I mean, the U.S., the Dixie's above 106 and is, you know, just crushing it right now. Vertical move since uh, really around 7 a.m. Eastern time this morning. Um, interestingly enough, the stock market's down today, but not down a huge amount. I think the S&P's down about a quarter of a percent. The Nasdaq is down uh, same kind of right in that same range. So, so overall, the markets are digesting this for now, probably because they're slightly oversold now. We, we had that big dump on the Federal Reserve, uh, and then the follow-through on Thursday and Friday of last week. And, and we kind of saw the same thing on Bitcoin. Bitcoin popped up, um, kind of came into this downsloping resistance around 27300 and then it just kind of backed off. And I, and I think for me, the biggest thing that I'm continuing to follow is um, we, ha we had the, the BlackRock ETF spot news that came out in June. Um, and and for me, that's the low that I'm watching. Like so far, we have not violated that low around twenty four thousand seven seventy five. And even on the recent dip, we didn't get below that level. So we're still kind of in this higher lows atmosphere. 
And as long as that holds, I mean, there is hope here. Maybe we do get that news in October that's bullish. Um, My biggest thing would be if we do get an approval of a spot ETF, you have to see Bitcoin take out that 32,000 level. Like if it can't take out 32,000 on that news, then that would be very scary overall to me at least. So it would be pretty wild to see Bitcoin make the exact same move that it made on the idea of a BlackRock ETF approval on the actual approval of the BlackRock ETF. That would be, I mean, it would be amazingly crazy to see. And, and I think it would also speak, I think there's so many people, and I've heard this, this is, you know, you always see these narratives in crypto. It's, you know, buy now because the halving's a guaranteed winner for you. Um, you know, buy because when the approval comes, it's off to the races. And I think there's a lot of people that are saying, all right, I've accumulated here and they're waiting for that spot approval. And if that spot approval comes and we don't take out the highs, you know, what kind of disappointment is that going to bring in? And is that going to bring in a wave of selling afterwards um, if it doesn't happen? So, so just kind of things to keep an eye on. And, and again, just remember past cycles, right? We, we saw basically the 2017 high coordinated with the approval of the, the futures for Bitcoin, the 2021 coordinated with the approval of the ETF, the futures ETF. And then here we're coming into this one. Do we get a pop into it or or if people discounted it at this point? Um, overall, I still think it's uh, like you said, with Michael Saylor buying, it's it's he he couldn't care less where price is right now. His vision is 5, 10, 20 years down the line. Um, so it's a really shorter term investment kind of thing where, where you care about what this price action is. And listen, you and I talked about on Market Mavericks last Thursday, the fact that the S&P, specifically SPY, was kind of forming a technical head and shoulders and dropping. Since then, we saw it actually break down, retest that neckline sort of as resistance. This is technical jargon for a topping pattern in the market. So uh, we, and we can kind of go around to anyone else. I know we've got some other uh, macro sort of minds here. Um, but, uh, you know, do you think that, let's here make it a really uh, hard but uh, question that's going to put you on the spot. But do you think that the top is in for stocks for the year? I, I do personally. Yeah, I do. And again, I it's agree, interesting. If, if you go back to the 2000s, the dot-com bubble, um, the NASDAQ is almost identical all the way through this recent bounce um, to what we see now in the NASDAQ. So, so I, you know, again, for me, it's always looking at the patterns, and, and patterns tend to repeat because human nature doesn't change. Uh, and, and until proven otherwise, until we take out that all-time high, I do believe that that at this stage, we're kind of beginning our downward move. And, and think about this. We haven't even gotten to a recession yet, but we, we all know it's coming, right, whether it's next year or the year after. At some point, we're going to see a recession. We know the the consumers tapped out, even though they're still spending. Their credit card debt is nuts. We know the deficit is above 30. I mean, there's so many kind of things. It almost reminds me of like, you know, someone carrying weights on their back. And, and it seems like every day there's a new weight that goes on that back. Eventually, you're going to break down, right? Eventually, you're going to have, you're not going to be able to support the weight. And so that's the question is, at what point does that hit? Yeah, it's like we have the uh, Atlas shrugged meme with uh, Atlas being NVIDIA and AI and the entire world on the shoulders being the rest of the market. Yeah. I mean, it's not that much stress in in treasury markets right now. I mean, it would definitely have to get meaningfully worse from current levels for the Fed to be – you know, particularly concerned about it. I think, I I mean, I think we all know that there is some level there where they can just kind of step in and, um, uh, you know, make all this go away and that will just keep working until, you know, maybe one day that doesn't work, but that time is 
almost certainly not now. Um, so, so maybe you get some more stress, you know, for, for a while. Um, but I, it doesn't seem like it's like that dire of a, of a situation to me. I mean, we're at the very tail end of a, of a hiking cycle and it's the biggest one we've had in, uh, you know, since at least a one, if not, if not further back. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Gareth. And I want to go to Michael afterwards to just get a, a, a more yeah, I was just, dig deeper into the macro picture. Go ahead, Gareth. Yeah. I was going to say in general, I agree. Like, I, I don't think that we're on the verge of a depression. Like you'll hear that narrative out there too. And I don't think that's going to happen because the fed can still, they've already raised rates this high. They can still come back and flood the market with low rates and more money at a certain point. Like you said, eventually sometime at some point it doesn't work, which again, I've speculated that could be the hundred year cycle, which kind of mirrors is the depression, the Great Depression in the late, you know, 2029 kind of thing at that stage. But I agree with you. I think for me, the the base case now is that we kind of fall into a recession that's not a horrendous recession, but it's just it's one of those things that could last a really long time because the Fed cannot be as aggressive as they used to be, right? So so you know, because inflation is still slightly elevated, they can't you know print the same amount of money they did during COVID, which probably means it's harder for us to get out of that. And it's just like this dragging on kind of crappy period. They do, but Gareth, they do have, and before going to Michael Green, they, they do have a lot of ammunition. Like the benefit of raising rates to the level they are they're at now, and tell me if I'm oversimplifying it, but it just gives them room. And obviously, there's inflation they have to take into consideration. But if the economy takes a much bigger hit than anyone anticipated, things start getting ugly. The Fed has a lot of room to move down now. Have they, they, do have, they do have room, but they do have also handcuffs, right? So they're, they're kind of handcuffed because they can't drop rates too quickly or too, too much because then the inflation goes from, you know, three or 4% to 12 or 15%. But wouldn't, they, wouldn't they need, but wouldn't they need to start accepting structurally higher inflation? Like then, then they have no choice if the economy gets a lot weaker, a lot faster. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I do think that the goalpost will be moved, right? But but I do think that they're going to try to be very initially, especially they're going to be really careful on that because they they do understand that inflation attacks the middle and and lower income people, and I think that's that's what right now seems to be their priority. But you're right. Eventually, I do think the goalpost gets moved from two percent to three percent. Yeah, I want to go to Michael. Michael, we've got a lot of indicators coming in, a lot of data coming in this week. You know, we've got the GDP numbers coming in on, on September 28th. Um, the forecasts, I think there's all these different forecasts. Actually, I won't read them. We've got the jobless claims uh, also coming in on the 28th. Um, and we have, um, uh, so Powell also speaks on the 28th. So in three days, a big day. And also on to the 28th, is it all on the 28th? We've got the Eurozone CPI coming up as well. I'd love to get your thoughts on the importance of these numbers, what we expect to see and how that could impact uh, uh, the Fed strategy moving forward. Um, well, I mean, look, the, the interesting challenge, and I think the last speaker was addressing parts of this, is, is not so much what is the Fed, um, what is the data going to say, but how the Fed can actually respond to it. You know, they've given very firm guidance that they want to be um, extremely cautious with an emphasis being on the inflation side of it, not so much cautious on the employment or the economy side of it. I think that naturally gives us a bias that's not dissimilar to, you know, a 180-degree version of what transpired in 2021, where they were exceptionally slow to recognize the incipient inflation and acceleration in the economy. 
Um, and so just as they were slow to move in 2021, they're likely to be slow to react in 2023 and possibly even 2024. That sets a higher bar for what the market now has to accomplish in order to get them to change their mind. And that can happen on some of the fundamental data, which I would argue we're going to start to see that um, in the same way comparisons have been getting more difficult for the, um, uh, you know, for raw materials like crude oil, gasoline, et cetera, they're now getting quite a bit easier on the core components of inflation. Um, and, you know, that may provide some relief. And I, my guess is, is that by the time we get there, the Fed is not required to actually hike through November um, or through it into December. And one of the interesting things that's happened post-Fed has been a general broadening out of the risks of rate hikes um, from, you know, relatively going into the event. They were obviously quite low around a September hike, but they were reasonably high around a November hike. Now we're looking at some of that November has been degraded. Yeah, I think he's dropped out. Um, and I wanted to ask him about the um, – oh, you're back, yeah. Michael. Your mic, your mic isn't – I'm not sure if you – I know you're on the move. Is there any chance to improve the mic or it's impossible? It's pretty, it's it's pretty impossible. I'm in a car. Um, so I'm sorry. Uh, all good, all good. Okay, so so I'm not sure what you guys what – I, what I missed there because it was dead on. No, we heard we heard, we heard everything. It just everything. cut out. Okay. Yeah, literally a second. All right, yeah. so, so the biggest thing that I'm paying attention to is, is that actual dynamic of basically broadening out those hikes at the end of this year. To me, that's a pretty strong indication that they're not going to hike um, through the end of this year, right? Effectively, that the markets are going to be able to pull that off, and then it becomes a question of can we convince them to cut in 2024, which I think is a, probably a, a, a higher hurdle. Um, although, again, I think the data will start moving our way on that front. Um, but the biggest thing is, you know, the Fed almost never hikes unless there's roughly a 70% probability priced into the event. And now we're way below that on, on the interest rate hiking expectations. So I, and, all, uh, all a very long-winded way of saying, I think all the data that's coming out is basically going to lead to no action on the Fed. I think the idea of it getting far enough to cause them to even talk about cutting, you know, that that's a market event. That's not news. And what's the, you said the probability is well below 70%. What's the probability now of a, of a, of a rate hike? How far off are we from the 70%? Uh, I can't see it directly in front of me, but if I remember correctly, we were about 16% for November and about the same for December. And so while cumulatively that goes to, you know, 30 plus percent or even four, remember it um, absolutely correctly. The fact that none of those actually expresses a particularly strong probability and we should anticipate the comparisons getting easier on the inflation at the same time that we're seeing a general slowdown beginning to emerge. I just think the, the takeaway has to be that the Fed is done and that's increasingly being priced into the SOFR curve. And uh, Michael, another question I have for you is the, the, the debate about a hard versus soft landing. Like the indicators are pointing, at least in my opinion, um, a bit, people, analysts are, are split on that, but they are pointing to a soft landing. Um, are you worried about a hard landing? You know, some people talking, Gareth did hint at, not hint, but did refer to, to some people talking about a depression uh, that'll be coming in. Where do you stand on this? Well, I, I think the challenge is that, you know, if we could project, um, 
forward what happens through a recession, you know, that would be wonderful, but it's very hard to do. Recessions, by definition, are inherently chaotic events in which, um, you know, we effectively execute various change of control features, right? Meaning people lose their homes, they lose their jobs, they're no longer in control in a way that they would have anticipated being just shortly before. Um, I think that's particularly true in the commercial real estate sector. I think it's commercially particularly true in um, the housing sector. We don't have great visibility in terms of what this means for the levered corporate sector, primarily private equity. Um, And so, you know, we're watching a situation where I would just describe it as we know it's going to be really bad unless the Fed responds. And therefore, everybody is assuming that the Fed is going to respond, and that will be the solution set. But in order to get the Fed to respond, something really bad has to happen, right? And if that really bad thing actually happens, if somebody goes uh, into default, and, and I'll just give an extreme example of this that I highlighted on my Substack. You know, we're looking at a situation with entities like Verizon and AT&T, where they are already, um, you know, bring behemoths that largely exist to pay uh, um, uh, unionized worker pension plans. They're seeing meaningfully slowing growth in their core businesses. Um, price shopping is getting more and more brutal in the cellular space, which has offset the decline of the plain old telephone service, the traditional landline business. Um, and these things are very, very heavily indebted with an average coupon of like 2.6% in an environment in which they're highly likely to see a dramatic increase in their cost of debt over the next couple of years. So like th- that feels like one of these crazy outside scenarios, but it's almost identical to the gameplay that played out with General Motors, Ford, Chrysler going bankrupt in 2008, right? They were downgraded in 2005, choked the high yield market. Um, and we're looking at the potential for a replay of that, right? And by the way, the auto companies themselves are, are totally, you know, up for play as well. Their finances, while they look strong on a short-term basis, is a very fundamental deterioration that's associated with the transition to electric vehicles um, and the change, you know, the underlying change in, in the behavior of the consumer around that. We just don't know. We don't know how this is going to play out yet. And so I think a, a call for either hard or soft landing seems extremely premature. Yeah, and, and uh, interesting, I'm just going to mention uh, before going to the last story of the day, just a bit of an update on, on FTX. Uh, talking about a soft landing, there's someone, his name is Joe, he's been on the on our stage a few times. He did a really interesting chart. There it is, Joe Consorti comes on our stage a lot. He's talking about, <laughs> he did a nice chart, uh, and uh, you can go on his profile to see it. talks about soft landing headlines. Um, and his his uh, I the point he's trying to make is that when the Fed has done hiking, headlines about a soft landing for the U.S. economy surge. So we start seeing a lot of headlines talking about a, a a soft landing. So that's when the Fed has done hiking rates. But now the headlines are disappearing. So he's talking like they've completely plummeted. And he did a nice chart where the headlines pick up. Let me see if it picks up before uh, before the Fed uh, stops uh, uh, stops hiking rates. And there seems to be a correlation there. You could check the chart. Um, so yeah, it is an interesting chart. 
And he still talks about how historically within a few months of this, the economy worsens severely and the Fed cuts rates. So it's like an early indicator um, of the Fed cutting rates and the economy not doing too well. And we're not seeing that indicator now. So just thought I'd give him a shout out. It's a nice chart that I came across or the team came across on Twitter. Um, but the last story, Scott, I'll keep today's show um, short. Um, and it's, uh, it's Sam. Have you, did you read the story about Sam Bankman-Fried? Yes, I did. They wrote a 250-page essay basically blaming Carolyn Ellison uh, for everything. And Sam Trabuco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's two. Uh, yeah, there's three. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he criticized Trabuco but did say that Trabuco was planning to leave the company in, in late 2021. But he's saying that uh, he's denying the commingling of uh, customer funds, saying that, that was fabricated by the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell. And basically, just uh, his girlfriend, who's already pled guilty, basically, and flipped on him to fraud. He's blaming her for everything, which is just so absolutely absurd because she was obviously the head of Alameda, and Alameda should have never had access to anything FTX related. So they should have been completely an unrelated thing. It's like he's digging his own grave when I read through this stuff. Yeah, and also he's been digging his own grave since he came up on Spaces uh, last year. Got a couple jets, though. He did get a couple jets, apparently. Yeah, and even shares in an airline company, apparently, like he, he becoming a co-owner of an airline company and owning a bunch of jets. You know, it's not really an airline company. They've only got a few jets. Um, but um, yeah, so he, he blames her. He said that the reason they broke up is Ellison, his ex-girlfriend, uh, she avoided risk management discussions. And that's why they broke up. Um, so he was really frustrated with that. Um, so it's a, it's a long essay. That's the, he didn't post it on X this time. didn't post it on Twitter. He sent it to New York Times. And that's kind of a, you know, little snippets that are worth mentioning so it's just nothing nothing too major in there i'm guessing his his, his lawyers kind of looked into it before they allowed him to publish it my guess is they did um and yeah he does he does a, there's a whole dispute about him who's he's uh ftx loaned money to a company in order to buy a couple of jets something along those lines and and now these guys are the biggest biggest creditors in uh in uh bahamas is it in bahamas no yeah, he's, RT, yeah he's I see you had your mic lifted. Did you have something to say? Well, we can put that co-mingling denial to bed right now because I withdrew in 2022 January from FTX and I received a wire from FTX and two weeks later I withdrew another amount and I received a wire from Alameda. So uh, at the time I didn't see that as the red flag it was, but uh, I think we could put that one to rest right now. The yeah, and I think obviously Travis is here <laughs> and you, you, you probably have very strong thoughts on FTX. What kind of strong thoughts? <laughs> uh, you're a big. You're, 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 you don't. You think it's very predators. Yeah, you're you're you're, un, you're unhappy with the way we're representing them, and and you know, innocent until, guilt, <laughs> until proven guilty. Correct, Travis. Well, I don't have any hate in my heart for Sam Bankman Fried. I don't think that's a good way to go through life. You gotta you gotta let that shit go. That all that kind of stuff will really eat you up. Um, but, but like one thing I was thinking about today, Travis, and I know we're, we're meant to wrap up, but like I was just looking at what he's built. I'm like, why did you have to fuck up? Like you were building something good. Like you're a smart guy. Why did you have to become a criminal and fuck it all up? Like FTX had, it was a clean exchange. It was a good exchange. Uh, Alameda is a smart trader. But then you just had to fuck up and do a lot of dirty things and illegal things. And, and here we well, are. We, we, so that we, was my thought. We have seen that enough in the crypto ecosystem, you know, over the last 18 months. And, and you can go back a decade and see the same thing. But it's, it's no longer a valid defense when you're looking at an organization. You say that organization will not commit fraud 
because they're making too much money. You just, you can't say that anymore because we've seen it too many times where a platform or, or a company or a group of individuals will be very profitable. will have a very good business to, to, in some instances, what you would call a golden goose, right? You know, FTX, I think, you, you know, it's, it's not, it's not uh, an over exaggeration to call that a golden goose and people in crypto have just shown us time and time again that they are willing to commit massive fraud uh, despite that. And, and you know, that, yeah, that's I worth mean, watching. And, and, Mario, I would push back on the claim that uh, he was a good trader, that they were good traders, because keep, keep this in mind. Like you said, the golden goose FTX uh, was basically making billions themselves. They had the screens open for Alameda to show customers uh, trades. They knew where everyone's stops were. They were offering high leverage and still managed to poorly trade the market. So even stealing customers' funds to trade with, knowing what the customers' orders were and likely being able to manipulate the market, they still mm. lost billions and billions of dollars. So I would yeah, say but he, he's a crash. No, I, was talking, I, was, I was talking about the traders prior to FTX, his trades prior to FTX. But again, I don't know the history well enough. But FTX alone, alone was a good exchange. Like he, he played his cards right. The way he kind of uh, um, got close to the politicians was strategically smart move and he's trying to strong arm. And look how, how cocky he, he became. Did, but he did it by stealing money. So yeah, I, I know, I, I, stealing money. But I'm saying, if, if you take out all, the, um, my point is like, why get greedy when you've got something going? Like he was doing well. He didn't need to be the biggest exchange. He didn't need psychopathy. That's it's the answer. Yeah. It's just it's it, it's it's made off level criminality. Um, that's what it is. One more thing on the FTX bankruptcy. It was also just news today. Is that uh, I don't know if you saw this, but AWS is putting four billion dollars into anthropic ai which the ftx estate owns a big chunk of uh they're doing uh 1.25 billion to start uh but working up to a four billion dollar total investment uh and they're going to take uh anthropic and basically uh intertwine it with aws it's going to be the basically the llm inside oh, of wow. aws what's the value what's the value private, what's the how much no uh... unfortunately we oh, yeah and um there was another round earlier this year that anthropic did that, that uh was the valuation wasn't disclosed either but sam sam put 500 million into anthropic in the b round and pe Jeez. and people are thinking that's got to be worth at least $2 billion in this round because he has been getting diluted. Like that position has been getting diluted in every subsequent round. Um, but it's, I, I think it's got to be worth the it. Amount of, at least $2 Travis, billion. The, the amount of money he's made is mental. The amount of money that FTX, Alameda, et cetera, uh, criminality or not, uh, it, it, that investment being another example, those jets, like every week something pops up. Oh, we found more, found a few hundred million dollars here. We found a few hundred yeah. million dollars there. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but on that note, uh, I think, Scott, we could uh, wrap up the show and see everyone again tomorrow. Yeah, some days uh, but, there's just not that much to, to dig into. Yeah, but check. Well, there's a lot today. It's just what we just did it pretty quickly. Um, nothing too major, nothing too exciting. Um, did you talk about, because I know I had to jump off for a few minutes, you talked about Mike Novogratz's uh, a prediction that we'll be seeing an ETF uh, before the end of the year? We did. I think it's just one of those things. There's not that much to parse there, right? We'll see if he's right or we'll see if he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, true, true. By the way, check the the like, just be, as we end. Check the tweet I, we just posted. The one I had to jump off for a few to post. It's crazy to think people say these things. Um, like we live in a world where you have uh, Russia say 
one of the biggest, uh, so so the biggest country with the most uh, nuclear warheads, saying that the biggest country in Europe uh, should surrender or cease to exist. Imagine I told you that two years ago. You'd be thinking I'm off. He's a leading politician. He's a leading politician, though. He's not Putin, right? I, I know everything that comes from them is Putin. But my first take is: imagine if we took, like, as U.S. policy, every wild fucking thing that ever. But even the wild, yeah, yeah, true, true. But even the so he's not just some random politician. He is the. Uh, the uh, whatever leader of the lower house of parliament so he's got a pretty senior position but then if, if, if a US politician as much as you hate them if they say something even close to what this guy just said imagine someone says Russia should cease to exist or something along those lines um these guys you know, would lose the vote, would, would no longer be in parliament. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. Like, that's pretty extreme. Now, now, for me, I think this is more political maneuvering. Like you'd make a statement like this because the sentiment around the world, I don't know if you saw Zelensky was in Canada and that people were just yelling out, uh, get out of our country or something along those lines, just criticizing him. But just the beginning of the war, everyone was praising him. So like the sentiment in the West is shifting uh, considering the amount of money that's pouring into the war, whether you're against it or for it. And I think the, the Russian politicians is playing that game is trying to ignite more hate more fear among western voters to pressure politicians in the west mainly the u.s to get out of the support but i know this is a crypto show so kind of we're getting ahead of ourselves all right yeah. scott Move i'm on. gonna i'm gonna yeah, wrap up we're good we'll see you tomorrow bro see you, everyone yeah.